Welcome to the Green Docs. This is a podcast that talks about the latest in women's and family health and how that connects to the environment. Here's some headlines you didn't know you need to know. The results are in. Merriam-Webster Dictionary announces the word of the year for 2023. Green Docs. Wait, no. That can't be right. Authentic. <laughs> Towards a better boda boda. We're currently burning 1.8 million barrels of oil less per day because of electric vehicles, but less than half of that is from cars. The New York Times reports on the quiet revolution of two- and three-wheeled transport, often called boda-bodas, happening all around the world. And remembering the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol, new research suggests an environmental link to Tiny Tim's thankfully curable illness which also shines a light on a healthier 2024 to God bless us, everyone. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In our final holiday episode, we're talking seasonal mocktails and holiday recipes with a family medicine doctor with a unique specialty in lifestyle and culinary medicine. We'll be talking to Dr. Angie Neeson, who we met along with her husband, David, at the Heat and Health Summit in San Diego on episode 10. I'm Bruce Picard. I'm an OB in San Diego and a proud tree hugger and kelp lover. And I'm Nate DiNicola, a private practice OBGYN and chief medical officer and the delegate to our national and international OBGYN societies on environmental health. So, Bruce, we have the, the holidays coming up. What's new with you? Any big holiday plans? Well, I'm finally over COVID, although I still cough sometimes just for fun. But I did try a culinary challenge, kind of in honor of this episode. I decided to cook my first cacio e pepe. And I had found a recipe on Instagram and it looked doable. It's, it's a big challenge to me because it's so simple a dish that you really have to do it right or it just falls completely flat. And I am very pleased to announce that I loved my cacio e pepe and I've already got somebody lined up who wants to come over and have me make it for them. So there, I'm not Italian, but how about that? You didn't have to ask on the podcast. I'm on my way. <laughs> I'm ready to try it. <laughs> no, I found this this recipe on Instagram and I think it's uh, there are a couple little secrets that I picked up. I might have just lucked out this time, but it really was nice and, and hearty and gooey and peppery. Uh, it just hit all the notes. Well, there are definitely some some secrets that you have to get just right. Uh, and this is now our second Cacio e Pepe reference in the podcast. I'd be okay if we had one every episode. <laughs> but uh, so we'll have to circle back about how how your guest likes uh, likes the tricks in this new recipe. Yeah, well, we don't know each other that well, so she'll probably say something polite. I'm not sure we can believe her opinion. But it, it just really briefly, do you have any any secrets to, uh, when you make it? Because I'm sure this is something that you're quite good at. Well, yes. I, I mean, it's all in the the starch. I mean, you're right. The gooey factor is what you're going for. But the way you get there is by having starchy pasta water. Having the combination 
just right at just the right heat between your pasta water, your, I mean, this is obvious, your, your freshly ground pecorino uh, cheese, and then a bit of discernment, you know, like knowing what you like and what the taste is supposed to be. That's, that's the secret. So it's not really well kept. It's just really hard to do. I was very pleased. This didn't taste half bad at all. Anyway, what's been going on with you? We just finished our uh, OBGYN department harbor cruise around Balboa Island, which this time of year is all just decked out in really spectacular light decorations. There's a pretty pretty competitive like contest on the island for best of, and we've we've uh, done the sunset cruise. It's just the perfect time of the night. So we kind of went, went around and made our votes for uh, best house, and we're anxious to see how it how it lines up against the judges. Sounds like a wonderful holiday tradition, and you have that boat you took everybody out on. Yes, yeah, it's part of part of our kind of treat and and gift to our really hardworking staff who deal with uh, you know a lot of thoughtful patient questions and nonstop question uh, you know calls to labor and delivery, and uh, it's it's really a job that extends so far beyond nine to five. We at least a few times a year like to get out and do some team building things like this. So uh, how about this word authentic? What do you make out of that story? Is it an important word as far as you're concerned? Well, I, before getting to the authentic answer to all of this, I think it's kind of nice to notice how they came up with this because Merriam-Webster has been really on point with their naming of a word of the year. And it's evolved over time. It used to be, I think, truly just the word with the most number of searches or hits in any given 12-month period. But they've now gone beyond that. For a while, it was like online polls, just which was the most popular word. But now they they take those two methods to kind of generate a short list. But then the editors get through and it sounds like they really deliberate and decide what word kind of best reflects the the theme of, of that year. That, that's how it all went into this. And I think the word they've landed on, it resonates really well with our, our guest messages at the very least. And I, I immediately thought of, of Adam Aaron and talking us through the greenwashing examples, you know, how things that can perhaps look really good in public really under scrutiny don't hold up. And so I think authentic's an important word for us if you're considering eco-friendly challenges. Absolutely. And uh, I think it's also uh, a function, the popularity of this word is a function of the fact that AI has really burst onto the scene this year in a big way. Uh, And I think there are a lot of concerns because already there's a lot of effort being made to try to obscure fact from fiction out in the social media. And so it's it's not just a word that was searched a lot. It really, I think, is a big part of the zeitgeist, what's going on in society right now. So I think it's important to point it out because we, we benefit by knowing what's real and what's not. So tell me about your Boda Boda. When I first heard that, I thought you were talking about a character from Star Wars. No, across Africa and China and India, if you haven't been to these places, you've probably seen videos of these very noisy motorcycles that go up and down the streets uh, at all hours of the day and night, and oftentimes in very, very large numbers. These noisy, smelly motorcycle taxis are pretty quickly being replaced by rather quick and silent electric versions of electric motorcycles. And not only does this help cut down on the noise, but in many of these cities and in very crowded places in in the world, these engines are responsible for an awful lot of air pollution. So it's going to help take that away also. In China, in particular, millions commute using e-bikes. In Nairobi, electric boda bodas are now taking advantage of a network of battery swaps 
so they can pull into a little station, effectively pull their battery out of their Boda Boda and and drop it into a place where they can pick up a fresh battery and be in and out in three minutes with a fully charged battery. And every time you say Boda Boda, you smile a little. So it's got that <laughs> laughter is medicine benefit too. I really like this headline you chose. And I, I can tell you when I was in India, uh, where I was giving a, a lecture on telehealth a few years ago, looking around at all the air pollution and all the, the vehicle vehicle traffic, it, it was really a sobering moment because you realized we're not one good electric vehicle away from solving any of this. The scale of the problem and the problem being carbon emissions from, from automotives was just so massive. You couldn't even appreciate without seeing it in person. But subsequently, I've seen a lot of interviews with with really smart experts saying that, you know, probably the best thing that could be done for many parts of the world where traffic it does exist like this would be to electrify the motorcycles and the you know, other bikes, the rickshaws, all these other parts of transport that are a huge part of how the city functions. Those really can be kind of turned over more quickly. And, uh, you know, everything's kind of one step at a time. So cool headline and hope we hear more about it in 2024. And it's exciting to see. And it's already, again, doing more to clean the air and help prevent worsening of the climate problem, more so than the electric cars that you and I see every day. So it's good news. Well, speaking of good news around this idea of, you know, how do we address air pollution? That ties into a new take on Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. Before I get into this, have you watched this movie recently at all, Bruce? Are you are you kind of a I yearly Christmas Carol viewer? No, I am not either, although I did recently watch a movie about it called The Man Who Invented Christmas. It has quickly become one of my favorite, not only Christmas movies, but just favorite movies that I've seen in the last year. So we'll look forward to talking more about the movie and uh, our list of uh, favorite Christmas movies that you may not have heard of, but there's fun facts you, you should know about them at the very end of this episode. But getting into maybe like the most memorable character from that, if not you know, if not Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, Tiny Tim was probably the most memorable character from A Christmas Carol. And, uh, you know, physicians who watch shows and like to diagnose everything they see have kind of for a long time theorized that Tiny Tim with his crutches had rickets, which is uh, softening of bones generally from vitamin D deficiency. He also, I, I think in some movies you see him coughing. He was known to have some respiratory illness, probably what was then called consumption. Now we know it uh, as tuberculosis. The exact diseases that he likely represented from the society at that time are not really what's new. But what's new is the environmental link to it. Do you have any guesses what this what this would be? Well, it was a ton of air pollution in London at the time. And certainly sanitation was absent or minimal. Uh, and their whole concept of, of infectious disease had not, I don't think, evolved to the point where they understood at all about microbes and the different pathogens that we know cause the great majority of infections. Yeah. So it, it was kind of a combination of two things that I think are interesting, which is exactly what, what you said. It, on the one hand, the air pollution, which you know, this was kind of turn of the 19th century, early 1800s, was part of the Industrial Revolution where coal uh, was the main source of fuel. And that created a lot of soot in the air. And basically in London and Manchester and these, these parts of the United Kingdom in particular, it was known to just be overcast for days. And like the soot would block out sun. And so you would you would be getting less natural vitamin D, which even you know during COVID, we saw that return in, in modern times. But the other factor, like you were talking about, was basically just the filth in the city. 
due to narrow passages between homes, overcrowded rooms and, and other living conditions. And th there's a term that existed back then that I kind of think we need to re reestablish, which is the miasma. And that's not my asthma, like my respiratory disease, uh, but it's called <laughs> miasma, which is sort of like the flip side of terroir. You know, we think about terroir with uh, wine, probably. And it's all the good things that go into what makes a wine delicious. Sunlight, soil, the precipitation. Miasma was kind of all the bad things that went into any area that made it dangerous. You know, it was the conditions that lead to, say, rodents having infections like the plague that they then spread to humans. It was sewage and just lack of sanitation. So because of all this miasma in London at the time, not only were people who went outside prone to those infections, they therefore were encouraged to stay inside. And one more reason why they wouldn't get natural vitamin D. I think we have some interesting kind of new reflections on, on what led to Tiny Tim's condition in the first place. God bless Tiny Tim. All right. I think we ought to pivot to talking about a comment that we received uh, after our last episode, our Thanksgiving episode. One of our frequent listeners, who's actually a doctor, stated that we mentioned organic produce when we were talking about how to make Thanksgiving dinner healthy, but we didn't say anything about the biggest and easiest thing most people can do to lower their own personal emissions, which is to go on a plant-based diet. Yes, even during Thanksgiving. And she pointed out there are many vegan and vegetarian roasts available. And frankly, I read this comment and I thought, yeah, we probably should have mentioned that. I have had years where I haven't had turkey and I still had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's true that I miss it because of how many years and, and just I just associate those flavors with the holiday. But I think there's nothing wrong with considering alternatives and maybe having less turkey is one of the answers. What do you think, Nate? Are you going to push back on this completely? Yes. Uh <laughs> A little bit. Not on the point of eating plant-based. Definitely not there. I think, at least for me to be like genuine in, in my discussions here, I, I've got to say what I realistically would and wouldn't do. And uh, no, I'd be eating turkey on Thanksgiving pretty much across the board and, and without any regret. So for many years in, in residency at Tulane in New Orleans, we would choose which dates to be on call, which holidays. And it was either like Christmas or New Year's. You picked one of those two. And then the other one was either being on call for Thanksgiving or for Mardi Gras. So I, of course, was on call for four straight Thanksgivings in New Orleans <laughs> uh, and spent basically the whole weekend in the hospital. And even then, we managed to get some turkey. I, you know, for, for I think a lot of people, that's, that's just a part of the celebration. And I don't really see anything wrong with that. But I do think the point's well taken that, that a plant-based diet has, has many, many benefits. It's not hard to kind of incorporate or or expand a typical menu with a lot more vegetable options rather than say piling on you know meat after meat after meat yes and the question also is a wonderful segue into what we'll be talking about in the upcoming interview with dr angie neeson all about healthier eating and all the benefits that we get from that so we'll be right back with our interview Welcome back. We have the pleasure of talking to our friend and colleague, Dr. Angie Neeson, who is a family physician with Sharp Healthcare here in San Diego. And Angie is also board certified in lifestyle and culinary medicine, as well as being an active member of the Public Health Advisory Council here in San Diego, which is a group of doctors that work on 
climate change related legislation. So Angie, welcome to the Green Docs. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is super fun. Yeah, it's great to great to see you again, Angie. So this this is kind of one of our holiday episodes, and it's it's that time of year. So we we do ask, do you do you yourself have any favorite holiday traditions? Oh, I love making tamales for as a family because it's like a family event. It's um you know everybody plays a role, and as a child, you're like the spreader of the the masa on the corn husks and you the folder, and it's just such a family fun event that that's one of my favorite traditions to do with my kids, my family, my parents, my brothers. That's my favorite part. Yeah. So how many people end up participating in this? I know you've got you've got kids and So a lot of times it's like an assembly line. You kind of get like, you know, everybody has their job and then two hours later you've got like enough tamales to feed the whole city. It's Probably like you can get up to like, you know, 10 of us together in a room and it just makes time go by so fast and it's fun. And Oh, and this year, um, my mom has actually taken some very creative, you know, ways in trying to make this more plant-based. So we put like black beans, a little bit of lentils, some of that poblano chili spice. So it's still spicy, but it's got the black beans in there. It's got some corn. It's got some veggies in there. So it's kind of fun. It's just fun to like explore an, an old tradition with some new plant-based proteins. Okay, I'm going to officially say that I'm already hungry. I thought that that might happen during this episode. It's happened almost immediately. And uh, I volunteer. If you have an excess of tamales and you can't store them, uh, the Green Docs will take some off your hands. Uh, I will definitely ship you a few. Sounds awesome. Angie, I want to back you up a little bit in your career because I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering about lifestyle and culinary medicine. Tell us about this subspecialty. I guess it's within family practice. What kind of extra training that involved and how do you approach patients differently because of this subspecialty of yours? Well, I'm actually so glad that these specialties became available. They are fairly new. They're available to any primary board certification. So, once you get your primary board certification, so mine is in family medicine, but you can get it in internal medicine, you can get it in OB, pediatrics, any any specialty. And then um, these certifications, since they're fairly new, you have to be practicing at least two years before you register for the lifestyle medicine exam. There is hands-on, obviously, hands-on teaching kitchen modules that you have to complete. And I did mine in Tulane, so I know, Nate, you were there. And that was a super fun training uh, kitchen training, which I think you've cooked in that kitchen before. So the six pillars that we recommend in lifestyle medicine are a whole food plant predominant eating pattern, physical activity. Notice I didn't say exercise, I said physical activity, restorative sleep, stress management, positive social connections, which I've been emphasizing a lot since, you know, after COVID, and then avoidance of risky substances. So those are the six pillars. And um, so it's not always about food, but to me, food is sort of like the gateway to be able to share with patients. Everybody has to eat three meals a day. Everybody loves delicious food. Everybody likes to feed their family and their loved ones with food. So to me, it's a conversation about being able to start with food and then bridge it with other aspects of lifestyle medicine and those pillars. So one of my favorite things that one of my colleagues told me is he said, so you're not really about any particular diet. You're really just using food to help people become the better versions of themselves. 
And I thought that was just such a really great way of putting it because that's exactly what I do believe in is is that we are all connected and there's no such thing as good food or bad food. It's just food. And so to me, it's a way of practicing sort of in a holistic evidence-based way to tap into those behavior changes, to make our behaviors um, related to individual behaviors and also planetary behaviors to make them better for our future generations and for ourselves. Well, using food to become better versions of yourself, I think we just gave every chef their tagline also. Uh, my brother, I'm sure, will, will relate to that one who's a chef in LA. And that sounds like a really positive way to look at dietary nutrition counseling. I, I did want to ask about one thing specifically that you mentioned, which was a plant-predominant diet. Can you talk a little more about what that means to be plant-predominant? Plant-predominant. So, you know, I like to call it plant-forward. So, it's intentional. Intentional is, you know, you're moving towards a direction. You're not completely... So, so everybody's included. We're inclusive here. We're not leaving out just vegan doesn't really tell me much about what you're eating. It just tells me you're not eating animal products. Vegetarian doesn't really tell me what you're eating. It could be, you know, Oreos and Diet Coke. I have no idea. So I think plant predominant means you're actually eating plants and plant forward is you're actually intentionally moving towards that direction. So even if you do consume meat in your diet, it doesn't, it's, we're still including it. You know, it's, it's part of it. It's just, we're using plants as sort of the focus and the celebration of what a, a dietary pattern has shown as far as evidence-based towards health changes, but also making sure that it, it keeps our planet healthier as well, because we know that consuming more plants in a plant-rich diet really does help our environment and creates a better biodiversity. It helps just make sure we don't create more greenhouse gas emissions with supporting meat uh, factory farming. I think so many times when people face significant dietary change is kind of overwhelming. And if you think I'm just going to suddenly become vegetarian, people get caught up in, in making the transition. So I, I like this idea that you're making it more, let's move in the right direction, as opposed to having to make a radical change overnight. Do you have any particular success stories that come to mind with patients that you have, uh, that you've helped? Oh, I have so many. And I love hearing like what resonates with certain patients, certain times. So I started over on social media, just a meatless Monday. And just over time, I've just noticed a lot of my patients say, you know, I'm, I'm eating less meat overall. And to me, it just tells me that they're probably making more room for fruits and vegetables as well, or that they're just exploring that idea. We know that eating a diverse amount of plants per week really helps the gut microbiome. So I tell patients instead of using words such as eliminate, avoid, reduce. I try to use the positive words like, hey, I really think you should add more plants to your diet as we know that that helps with the immune system, the gut health. It's linked to everything from longevity, reduction in pain, cancer prevention, autoimmune conditions, mental health, brain health. I mean, anything, right? But no one gives you those, those selling points when you go to the grocery store so really, I just talk about adding more on a positive note. And then from there, we know that that kind of helps just embrace the fact that we need to diversify our diets. And so I just basically start there with patients. And so once they're starting to incorporate more of those plant-based diets, then we can see that, uh, or plant-based meals, I can see that their chronic conditions just improve. And I'll ask them, like, what did you do? And they're like, you know, I just really started to incorporate more 
snacks and I love having an after dinner snack with fruit and nuts and chocolate, just like you recommended. And it's these these little things that I think people don't recognize that it doesn't have to be one huge change. It's just these little small things over time that really lead to big changes over a person's life. And again, since I said food is so connecting, it's these little habits that we make that really do get passed on to our kids. You know, my mom learned all of the plant-based and food as medicine vocabulary because she was learning about how to prevent diabetes for herself because of her father, who was a diabetic. And by that, I just learned by osmosis. And so I grew up with the language of Spanish first, then English, and then food as medicine. I really didn't have to think about it. And so if I can easily now come up with a recipe that is still true to my culture, still true to myself, but just changes a couple of the ingredients that are seasonal. Well, that sounds like the perfect segue to one of the main highlights we've been looking forward to for this interview, which is, do you have any holiday recipes that you can share with us that kind of tie in these family heritage and health-minded direction, but also have a a little bit of sustainability in them? One of my favorite recipes is, you know, Christmas is a fun time of year. It's a magical time of year. It's just kids love it. You'd love to see them smile. So I start with an easy recipe I give to my patients and to my patients who are pediatric patients. So I say, which pasta do you love? Do you want red sauce or do you want green sauce? Or do you want them together? as Christmas. And usually they'll say Christmas. And so now we know that we've just increased the diversity of plants in their diet by adding a red sauce. And I'll give a recipe. I, you know, say onions, make sure that they are nice and caramelized, put some carrots in there. That's going to bring in a little bit of the sweetness. Then you put some canned tomatoes, maybe a little bit of tomato paste, and then your favorite herbs. And there you go. You have a easy tomato sauce. And then we talk about the green sauce, which is the the pesto, and that could be anything. So pesto can be really made out of the traditional basil, or you can just use any kind of greens that you have. So my favorite is just using, if I have some kale or if I have some spinach, maybe the carrot tops from the from the carrots that I've been growing. And you just mix them together with some salt, some garlic. Uh, I put a little bit of nutritional yeast, but you can use Parmesan cheese. And I use some some nuts. So I use some uh, walnuts instead of the traditional pine nuts. And then again, you just blend that together with some good extra virgin olive oil. And then you have your green sauce. So you have your green sauce ready to go. You have your red sauce ready to go. And then the kids decide, do they want the long noodles or the spiraled noodles? Or do they want the whatever kind of pasta they want, right? You're giving them the autonomy. You're giving them that self-efficacy to make their own decisions, which is another good point. And then if they want on top, they want it to snow on Christmas, then you just shave some grated Parmesan on top and then you've got Christmas all year long. So very easy to put together. And I think if you can make those sauces with the kids, I think it's actually really fun. But those have been sort of family favorites and most kids love pasta. Most kids love spaghetti. So those are pretty easy. But I also like, you know, warm stews and vegetables. So just grabbing whatever root vegetables you have, putting some cumin, some fennel seed. So fennel seed is, you know, gives it that like sausagey kind of flavor. And then putting it all in together and make a warm stew. I love beans this time of year because it's just comforting. Lentils, and I like exploring with different beans. And again, the more beans and the variety you choose, the better it is for a microbiome. So just put them all in there together and then 
you just end up having a whole new soup and then the next day it tastes even better and then the next day it's even better. Those are sort of my favorites this holiday season. I think it's great you get your kids involved in the preparation of so many of these things. And I don't know, I just has always seemed to me that if I make it, it tastes better. So if they have a sense that they're involved in the creation of these dishes, they probably enjoy them more. Do you think that's true? Absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things in culinary medicine is to get patients to cook more. So having that, the sense, because you know, you have to fumble through a recipe. You have to learn what certain how to make a recipe, how to follow steps. And then that's sort of like a backbone. And that's that's an, an art that's being lost in a lot of our generations now. A lot of people don't know how to cook. My kid, for the school fair, the book fair that they have once a year, I usually put $10 in and I say, all right, you get a book of your choice. And this year he came back with a cookbook, a dessert cookbook. And you would have thought, oh my gosh, desserts, sugar, all of that. But I was the happiest culinary medicine mom I could have ever been because he chose that book. He wanted to make them. So I took him to the, the grocery store and we just bought all the stuff. And granted, it, was, it wasn't like the best ingredients that I would have wanted. But because he's making it at home, I already know what goes in it. We can cut down on the amount of sugar, the amount of oils that we use, and the amount of salt that you use. So those are the three things in cooking that you really want to uh, reduce because that does play a role in inner chronic conditions as well. So pick up a, a book. So make it someone's gift this season. Just pick up a good cookbook and and try to just do a couple of recipes. And then after that, play around with it and make your own recipes out of that backbone of a recipe. Well, it, it's so great you made that point about the benefits of cooking at home because we've seen this come through in, in study after study that you could be eating essentially the same food, roughly the same recipe, but if you order it as takeout, you're bound to get a, an unhealthier version of it. Typically with, with say, salts, uh, more processed ingredients, the packaging of it might have things like lining that has hormone-disrupting chemicals like phthalates that you know, have health problems for kids and, and adults. It, we love that message of just, you know, even if the food is not, say, you know, strictly, strictly of the, the healthiest version, just doing it at home will be will be better. 100%. You know, one of the barriers to this kind of eating, I think, that comes up for a lot of people is they think it's going to be way more expensive somehow. So does eating in a more conscious or sustainable way have to necessarily cost more? And shouldn't we also be thinking about the downstream health benefits when we think about cost? Yeah, cost is definitely a problem. Cheap food does cost us all more. Um, there's no such thing as actual cheap food. The cheap items are actually distorted in the price by these large corporations. They push these prices to like unmanageable low prices for others to be able to compete with. So, and then don't forget, they have a whole team of people making sure you can't just have one. You know, they've created it scientifically to make sure you just can't have one. And then, then they have this huge marketing team as well. And so it's really hard to compete with that. And that is what I first tell my patients, the best prescription I can give you is awareness. Awareness on focusing on when you walk into a grocery store, you are going to be sold the things that are just the easiest, but you have to almost be the hunter gatherer of today's world, which is you have to really go through that <laughs> and figure out where's our food produced and focus on the fact that when you choose these foods that are focused on capitalism, they do neglect people and they do neglect the environment. So we do pay for it in healthcare costs as well. My wife, Kendall, shared a TikTok with me recently that was going through exactly what you were saying. 
all the smartest people in the world are doing all they can to make sure that you consume their product and feed into well-tested biological mechanisms where you're going to want that triple point of salt and sweet and uh, it'll make you come back. So you have to be almost perfect every single day to like, say, be on a weight loss program or to eat healthier. As people are looking more and more to kind of avoid that and, and do more things at home, do you have any any guidance for people who are trying to look for like some home remedies? You know, so so we, for example, have a lot of uh, pregnant patients we take care of who are trying not to take medications, but this time of year, especially, are still getting tickles in their throat or stuffy noses or, you know, are looking for some comfort food at home. Any recs in that direction? You can always make your own comfort foods at home. So one of my tips that I give my patients who like, for instance, they'll say, you know, I love ice cream. Ice cream is sort of my nemesis at home. Ben and Jerry is my friend. And and I get it. I You know, it's at the end of the day and you want something sweet and you want, it's just these textures and those high caloric, non-nutrient dense foods at night, especially just start to really take over and and we become unaware. And, and again, because they're made by a whole team of people who make sure that you can consume a whole tub of ice cream, make it, try to make it yourself. So I give a two ingredient ice cream recipe, which is literally just bananas, put them in the freezer, put them in the microwave after they thaw out and just mash them up and then put chocolate chips in there. I mean, nobody can eat 15 bananas in one sitting, but everyone can eat a whole tub of ice cream. And there's a reason for that. It just doesn't, it doesn't have that fiber that fruits do have, that vegetables do have. So in any case scenario, when we're going to be making thoughtful decisions, if you do focus on those fiber uh, filled foods, such as plants, you are going to feel that satiety, that ability to be able to get that connections from your brain that tell your or your gut that tell your brain you're full, you are satisfied, you are okay. And then the other thing is make the foods delicious. I mean, there's no such thing. There's no reason why we should have bland and boring food. So I first and foremost tell my patients like, which one's your favorite vegetable? And if they don't really come up with anything, I kind of give them mine. You know, I say, I love sweet potatoes. I love any potatoes actually, but I really love those little round purple potatoes. And here is a simple trick that I'm going to give you. Get some carrots because carrots keep for a long time. So people mostly have carrots. They also have potato. You can get some potatoes. Chop them all up. Put some extra virgin olive oil. Get whatever favorite herb you have. And if they don't have one, they can just put in some paprika or something like that. And then put some salt on it. And then I literally write in a prescription pad. I say put vegetables on, cut up vegetables bite-sized on a sheet, cookie sheet, tossed with olive oil and salt. 400 degrees for 35 minutes, 35 to 40 minutes, depending on what your your oven's like. Halfway through, open it up, let some heat out so that they get crispier and then they caramelize. And by the time 45 minutes goes by, you have them and you can make a bunch of them. You can put lots of little sheets in there and then you have them for the week and you can put them in your salads or soups or they make anything taste better. So even if you added it to your hummus, they would make it taste sweeter and and better. And so I would just say start with so start with um, root vegetables, which are comforting. Potatoes have been comforting, but make them yourself. You know, I think there's ways to make them delicious and and still get that bite that you're looking for, rather than going for like potato chips. And I'm going to put in a quick plug for the all electric gas free kitchen and mention that I have a Japanese steam toaster that also has an oven function, and I can do all that with a small tray 
at 400 degrees, just using electricity and not gas. You know, I love that you said that. I love that you said that, Bruce, because so that's actually changed a whole bunch since, you know, my culinary medicine early days when I was just popping things in the oven, the gas stove and everything. And now I'm we're completely induction. You know, you see my beautiful stove, but most of the time I'm cooking out of my induction stove and I have and in my induction burner. And then I have an air fryer. And since we're on solar, you know, we just use our small appliances, air fryer, Instapot slow cooker. Everything that we use is pretty much plugged in, but it's based off solar. So I I do recommend instead of heating up the whole house, instead of just letting that indoor pollution add up, especially if you have small kids or you have any lung disease, really, really maximizing those small appliances that most people already have in their house. So that's another thing is before I even go to asking patients about what foods they like or what foods they cook. I always ask, what appliances do you already have? Let's maximize that because I know that that's going to get better bang for their buck as well. Highly use them as well. Yeah, Angie, this is such a fun conversation because I'm, I'm hearing half of it with my doctor hat and thinking like, okay, how can we cook <laughs> this in a safer, you know, like nonstick pan or, you know, avoid the, the gas stove? But the other half of me is just lighting up every time I hear the food part because I, you know, I come from an Italian family. And uh, yes, the garlic advice, very, very important. That's like the first thing you learn and don't overcook the garlic. So I wanted to ask a follow up on some of the, you know, the, kind of the, the traditional side of things because we both spent time in New Orleans and they do have baked in, pun, pun unavoidable there, into their weekly schedule like a fish Friday. You know, every way where you went in New Orleans, you'd have like crawfish etouffee or, or whatever, you know, every uh, restaurant would not serve meat on Friday. Now, on the flip side, they definitely didn't do meatless Monday. They had like the red beans and rice every Monday. What do you tell your patients or people you're educating about like the balance of this as far as how, like, is there is there a general guidance for how many days a week maybe to go without meat or where, where, where does fish factor into this as well? Like, is that a good substitute? Yeah, you know, it's everything's in moderation. I honestly, like I said, I have no list of good foods, no list of bad foods. It's just really about how much you eat of each throughout your whole life. It's a pattern of eating that we're trying to aim for. And again, just starting with the basics of plants. So before you tell me, you know, whether you like meat or not, I'm going to ask you, what vegetables are you combining with it or what fruits and vegetables? And so I hold up my fist and I say, this was a serving how many servings do you think you're having, whether it's in your sauces, whether it's in snacks or morning breakfast or on the side of your dinner? And so if they say, you know, zero to two or the average American, which is two to three, and I try to get them up to the goal, which is five, five or more. So if we can just start there rather than saying, you know, completely eliminate meat, that's just going to naturally happen. I do talk about the protein rage that we have in our country. I think that a lot of times when we say protein, we equivalent that with meat and it has to come from meat. But in other countries, most of their protein is actually vegetable or plant-based protein, such as beans, legumes, um, nuts, seeds, tofu. And I think that we need to sort of adopt some of the ability of hybridizing that. So if we're going to be making, so I'll tell them, you know, give me your favorite recipe. And so if they say, I like meat tacos. And I'll say, okay, well, why don't you have one meat taco, one veggie taco, one bean taco? That's less meat. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but they could, you know, add more of the vegetables into another one of the ways. And so, or for instance, if they like, you know, making burgers or something, I'll say, all right, well, could you add some mushrooms to 
the burgers. Um, so you reduce some of that meat and add in a vegetable in there. Um, there's always a way that you could add some vegetables as a way to stretch a meal as well. So a lot of times right now, especially when patients are looking at cost, I'll ask them, what is the most expensive thing that you are buying? It's usually the biggest thing on the, the biggest you know item is is meat. And so if I'm trying to help them out holistically with their stress, which is a lot of it financial, I, I recommend going with beans, legumes, cutting down on the amount of meat that they're purchasing and then halving it with um, additional legumes or beans in that meal to make it stretch a little bit more. And they're, they're still getting a great amount of protein, plus they're getting the fiber and the phytonutrients that they get in those proteins. And so, so it's a win-win. And so it's a lot of times it's me as a physician just letting them know it's okay. This is okay. You are still feeding with love. You're still getting the flavor and you can still use meat as a sort of condiment or flavoring, but it's not the focus and no one's going to miss it because you're still serving it there, but it's just a little bit less than what mostly you expect. So instead of like everybody gets a slice of bacon, maybe it's just crumbles you know, obviously we'd want no bacon, but you know, if you're still going to have that, then maybe it's crumbles instead of like, you know, everybody gets a link or slice. You are quoting Thomas Jefferson with your comment about meat as a condiment or as a side dish as opposed to a main course. So congratulations for that historical reference. <laughs> but Angie, I want to take you back to uh, our interview that we had with you and your husband, Dave, who's an emergency medicine doc and also active with the Public Health Advisory Council, and something that you said during that interview, which was that the best kind of medicine you can practice is to work on our climate. Can you, and I'm paraphrasing that a bit, but can you explain what you meant by that? We have this oath that we graduated medical school by, uh, do no harm. And I think that if we were really going to consider our patients and the ever climate that's changing, we need to consider that if we're really doing no harm, we want to do no harm on other community members and our future generations. So for instance, if a patient says to me, I want to start being healthier and I want to start going to the gym and I say, well, that's, you know, that's going to require driving to the gym maybe, and that's going to get you in a gas car. So what would be easier than that? And so instead of just saying, yes, you got to go to the gym and you've got to get healthier foods from, you know, the restaurant or whatever. I, I really try to meet patients where they're at and say the easier choice is actually just doing it at home. So let me give you a couple of apps that you can just download and just do it at home. And then that saves you the driving, but it saves the environment. And now it's just an easier choice. So it's little things like that, that I think could be beneficial. And then other things such as, you know, what are you doing for the holidays? Are you going to be traveling? And if I know that they're going to be traveling, I'll say, you know, make sure that you don't waste the food that you already have in your fridge. So really try to consume it. So if you're not going to consume it, make sure you freeze it, try to eat up as much as you can, make some soups or put it in freezer bags, like just little tips like that. Angie, this advice is not only uh, healthy, uh, some of it quite delicious, but it has the added benefit of being true, uh, a tagline that we like to use on this podcast quite a bit. So thank you so much for, for sharing you know, some, some really insightful, evidence-based, and like familial and traditional bits of, of advice and wisdom for us. Uh, I think 
there's there's so many kind of different directions that anybody could could take this advice from, whether it's kind of home building or whether it's rethinking exercise or uh, you know a, a lot of different ways of approaching the holidays and and the new year. Thanks so much for joining us on the Green Docs, and uh, we will echo Bruce's comment that you know we we wouldn't we wouldn't turn down some tamales in the new year. <laughs> you will get them on the way, I promise. <laughs> but Angie, I. I... I was hungry when we started this conversation. I'm starving now. Thank you so much for your inspiration and for all the things that you do, not just for your individual patients, but for your community and beyond. Uh, you are a shining light, and we're really glad to feature you on our podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Well, that was Dr. Angie Neeson, a family medicine physician with specialized training in culinary and lifestyle medicine. And I, I so enjoy when we get to hear from physicians who are kind of stepping out of the clinical exam room and, and broadening their definition of medicine, because uh, it really just changed the way I think about how I'm going to approach my practice. To give a little bit of insight into how doctors basically review every kind of new bit of information they're presented, like in a journal club, reviewing new studies that have come out. The big question at the end of it all of it is, will it change what you do? And if it does, that means it was likely a very important study. And this interview with with uh, with Angie will will change what I would talk to patients about. So in in some ways, you know, I think the standard counseling that a lot of us do, certainly myself, in emphasizing the Mediterranean diet, which is already very heavy in things like vegetables, fruits, nuts, natural oils, lean meats. But the one question that stood out from her that, that I think will stick with me and I may use in the future is, do you have an answer for what's your favorite vegetable? Kind of seems like if you have an answer to that, you're probably living a plant-forward lifestyle. So how about you, Bruce? Do, do you have, for example, a favorite vegetable? <laughs> I think if someone's answer to that is French fries, we probably have a bit of work to do with them. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say so. And, you know, as I was thinking about kind of this her discussion with with our news about the environmental contributors to to Tiny Tim's condition, I, I think that Dickensian London could have used some more doctors with with an expertise in culinary medicine, because you know looking at the treatment for rickets back then, uh, one of the main ones was cod liver oil, which was basically a natural source of vitamin D from from fish. For those who are looking for their own source of vitamin D right now in in their diet, fatty fish is a very good one. As are kind of other things like herring, sardines, tuna in moderation, egg yolks. So a lot of ways to get good amount of vitamin D. And that's not to forget about getting outside in, in some natural vitamin D is, is very healthy for, for mind and body. Yes. Getting outside and moving around, getting your vitamin D while you're on a hike or a walk or a run uh, or a, a cycle. Uh, all these things have multiple co-benefits. And, and I think the other aspect that I just want to underline is uh, I'm impressed with Dr. Angie Neeson and her husband, Dr. David Neeson, who's a very busy and important Kaiser doc in the emergency department here in San Diego and how they have integrated their concern about the climate into their lives, both personally and professionally. And it sort of points out the other meaning of the title of our podcast, Green Docs, because it's about highlighting these people that go the extra mile and do things that will benefit not just themselves and their families or just their patients, uh, but virtually everybody. 
helping uh, our community here in San Diego move more away from fossil fuels as quickly as we can. So my hat, uh, our hats are off to them. Well, speaking of going the extra mile, Dr. Angie Neeson has not only given us some holiday recipes that we can uh, bring to our, our family, but she's also developed a mocktail just for us in this episode. So we're going to invite her back on uh, so she can share her mocktail recipe and then we'll we'll give it a try. Okay, so just because just for you guys, before I started on the show, I thought, okay, what could I make that's easy and accessible and everyone can have it in their kitchens? So I just brewed up some tea. So you just get whatever bread tea you have at home. So this one was like a blackberry sage that I had. Just brewed a little bit, made it nice and hot. And then I put some sparkling water on top. And then I sweetened it with some pomegranate molasses. Uh, But you can use some maple syrup. And then I went to my garden. I got some rosemary. And I just threw a little sprig in there. And so I've just been letting all of the flavors meld. And it's delicious. And it's like a beautiful herb and fruit forward easy mocktail and with that sprig of rosemary it looks like a little bit like christmas so uh i think that that fits our holiday mocktail uh, minimum requirements the red and the green i i love just wearing the red and the green (laughs) yeah it can go well with the uh, red and green pasta and i loved your addition to the italian tradition of grating cheese calling it holiday snow I'll totally be stealing that this Christmas dinner. <laughs> have, have you made this mocktail before, Angie? What, what, what do you think about it flavor-wise? Flavor-wise, I love the pomegranate molasses. I don't know if anybody has tried the pomegranate molasses, but it's a little bit citric sweet. There's something sort of like you can't put your finger on it, but it's 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 interesting. It's an interesting take on it. And I think that's what makes it kind of chefy is, is having a little bit of a, an ingredient that people can't guess. Um, and I think that's sort of the, um, I would say, the fun thing about a mocktail is putting an ingredient that no one else knows about. So for instance, just having the, how do you think I made this? And it's just literally a tea, and then just combining it with a little sweetener that you can keep in your fridge. And, and then going to the garden and just using a sprig of rosemary that you've got in your garden. I love this idea. And what I love about this drink, Angie, is that as you're holding it up, it looks like a cocktail. Like if people were trying to disguise the fact that they aren't drinking uh, alcoholic beverage, this really looks like it could be one. Well, Angie, thank you so much for going above and beyond and preparing a holiday mocktail for um, our listeners also. And I think Bruce and I are going to have to go find some pomegranate syrup and and make this for our, our next episode. All right, Bruce. So were you able to find some pomegranate syrup? Amazingly, yes, I was. I had not only that, but some rosemary and I brewed up some... Uh, I actually tried this with two different kinds of tea. I had some black tea, and I also made up a little batch of this for myself with some blueberry green tea. And it ends up, as with many things, the the ingredients make all the difference. So I think this actually tastes better with the blueberry green tea. One of the other little tricks that I discovered in in playing around with this for a few minutes is that the, the pomegranate syrup goes right to the bottom of the glass. You really do have to mix it. It's a lot heavier than the other liquids uh, in the glass. And the rosemary adds a really nice kind of extra dimension, kind of what Angie was talking about, that sort of surprise taste uh, that comes in. So anyway, I've got one ready. I'm about ready to try it. How about you? These were very easy ingredients to find, at least in some form. So I did not find pomegranate syrup exactly, but I found date syrup in in a regular grocery store, which I looked into a little bit once I found it. Apparently, this is one of the preferred alternatives to sugar. 
or, or ways to cook with sugar. So I mixed that with some pomegranate juice. I did put it all in a shaker and mix it like a cocktail, like a martini. That's that's what I have here. But uh, cheers, Bruce. What do you think? I think this culinary medicine training is a real thing <laughs> because this is delicious. Yeah, I really like mine. Doesn't remind me of anything else either. It's it's a it's a it's a combination of unusual flavors. Part of why I like it. Well, it's it's definitely sweet with with all that syrup. There's that, but. You know, when when you have an aromatic like right there at the top of the glass, it does change just how you how you experience it. And with the rosemary right there, as you sip the the pomegranate flavor, it it's got more dimension. I think it's great. Yeah, I think this training does teach you something. Okay, it shall it shall be known as Angie's Christmas mocktail from here on out on the Green Docks. Well done. So, how about those films that you were talking about? You mentioned. The Man Who Invented Christmas, which I hadn't seen before you suggested it. Yeah, like I said, this is not only one of my new favorite Christmas movies, it's one of my new favorite movies altogether. And basically, if you ever saw the movie Shakespeare in Love, where it's kind of the the backstory for how Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet, this is that for Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol. It's the backstory of how he came to write it. So what did you think, Bruce, when you, when you watched it? Well, first of all, it's really beautifully done movie, very much a period piece back in 1840s London. But what I particularly appreciated about it was that it's supposedly based a fair amount of uh, uh, history. Yeah, I definitely went down the rabbit hole researching, you know, how true was this story. And after quite a bit of reading, there weren't any great leaps in the movie. All the kind of uh, chronology, his trip to America, his three straight books in a row that did not do well. All of it basically checks out. So it is a largely true story. A, a few kind of fun takeaways from a fresh take on, a, on an old classic. So how about this Feast of the Seven Fishes? First of all, I don't eat fish, so I have no interest in seeing this movie whatsoever. Would I like it anyway? Yes, you would. Uh, everybody would. This is, a, this is a great little Christmas movie gem. It is set in 1983 with uh, around an Italian family that honors the Christmas Eve tradition of having a meal with seven fishes. Now, my dad, uh, coming from an Italian-American tradition, kind of randomly just adopted this for our family like 10 years ago. We have done this now for a while. And I tell you, it's, it's one of my favorite meals I look forward to every year. So it's a real thing. The number seven isn't quite so important. You know, sometimes a dish itself might have like four or five fish in it, like a, like a Chiapino fish stew. But the movie is great in that it's, it's only a few years old. It, it was filmed in 2019. But it feels like it was much older, kind of like the movie A Christmas Story. It feels like that was from back, you know, 1950s, 1960s, when really it, it aired in, in the 1980s. So you get an, get an old-timey feel. You get some actors who are really coming on their way up. A young Andrew Schultz, who now is kind of dominating the, the comedy circuit. Nearly every henchman in a mafia movie is in this movie. So there's no Tony Soprano, Don-type characters, but... All the all the middlemen, Cap Regime, are there, and uh, there's no real environmental or health message here, other than fish is a healthy alternative, and there's a celebration of it in this movie. <laughs> and I can understand why you like it because of how much you love eating fish and eating with your family, and I don't, I, I understand that completely. But uh, ste- stepping up into more modern times, one of the other episodes that we like is not a movie, but it's it's a single episode within a one-season series written by Aaron Sorkin called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. 
And in particular, they had a Christmas episode called The Christmas Show. It's episode 11, if you want to check it out. And first of all, I love Aaron Sorkin's writing just because of how dense and interesting his dialogue always is. And it's wonderful cast. Bradley Whitford's in there. Matthew Perry does perhaps some of his best work. Amanda Peet. There are a number of really, really good actors in this show. But in this particular episode, it's just a very beautifully woven story about different people opening their hearts to love at the time of Christmas. It's just, uh, boy, it's a feel-good episode that I watched twice in a row just because of how much I enjoyed it. You must have taken something even more from it having been in New Orleans yourself. Well, you know, I I don't say this uh, lightly. That show influenced me to go to New Orleans because this was airing kind of right about when I was making my decision about the rank list and, and where I'd go for residency. And I already had visited New Orleans. I already had uh, Tulane at the top of my list. I, I loved the city. I loved the faculty, everything. But this show came out kind of right about the time when you were finalizing the list. And uh, I'm sure you know, I don't appreciate fully how subconsciously it just made me feel so much love for the city of New Orleans. So yeah, that's a nice subtext of the episode. Overall, you know, the, the series, I completely agree. This is Matthew Perry's, in my opinion, greatest work. You know, I, I know after his death, a lot of people were turning back to Friends episodes. That's great. You know, those are always just kind of fun enjoyment for watching. I think this was his greatest work. Aaron Sorkin handpicked Matthew Perry to play the character of Matt Albee in the show, who Aaron Sorkin has said is, is largely autobiographical, you know, about his own say struggles with addiction and his own relationships. If you were to even watch, you know, from the pilot up through episode 11, 12 Days of Christmas style, I think you'd you'd be hard to find a better kind of feel good finale to, to the Christmas season. It is a beautiful, beautiful story. But how about this other show that Doc Martin that you had seen? Yes, Doc Martin. This was a show that my dad turned me on to many years ago. And it's um, a show from Britain about a big city doctor from London who uh, develops a fear of blood and so has to go back to work in a small little seaside village in Britain, the fictional Port Wen, but it's actually a Port Isaac in real life. They filmed everything on site. So if you kind of love watching even like a trailer of this of this show and think the scenery is gorgeous, it's real. All the filming was done there. The town kind of became a part of the character in real life and in the and in the show. And what's cool about this Christmas special is that it really is a standalone. So it is the last episode ever aired. There are some unavoidable spoilers, I guess you'd say, just in knowing which characters are there and how their relationships are uh, presented. But it really doesn't give away anything else about the show. Like you could watch this Christmas special and not have any other episodes really ruined. And the other thing that's kind of cool about this from a medical perspective is that in the UK, all the medical conditions they portray have to be accurate, like by law. So... If you enjoy watching medical dramas, trying to figure out the diagnosis or trying to, you know, kind of jump ahead, whether you're a doctor or this is just, you know, you've watched Grey's Anatomy, so you basically are a doctor, <laughs> you're not going to get tricked by something totally off the wall. Like there's not going to be a bomb sitting in somebody's belly, you know, undiscovered. Like they all have to match reality, which I thought was kind of a cool thing that, that Britain does with their shows. Do you know, by the way, how that policy came to be? Was there uh, some kind of a blowback when they had misrepresented medical conditions? You know, I don't know. But since you brought it up, two other quick comments on that. One is that Europe in general is just more strict about what is allowed to be said on television. 
uh, without getting into the exact politics of it all, there was a story not that long ago, like the last like three or four years, where a news organization in America was being sued by fr- by somebody in France because their coverage was so incorrect, like in so in error that it would be illegal in France. And this was like a, a common news station in the US. And we watched it. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's just business as usual. But to Europe, it was like, no, you, you can't present things on television as fact and have them not be true. The second comment on that was that the US used to be more like that. So another famous Christmas movie that, that was not on our list of lesser known ones, It's a Wonderful Life. And I think the spoiler alerts are, we're past that statute of limitations now to discuss major plot points. When Mr. Potts steals the, the money from George Bailey, they initially, the, whoever regulates this, didn't allow that. It, it wasn't allowed to be aired because he never paid for the crime in the fictional movie. So just think of how different things are now. That, you know, you used to not even be allowed to commit a crime without getting punished for it in fiction compared to the things that can be presented now on television that are said to be real. And which brings us back full circle to authentic and I think what's really important, which is to know what's real and what's not, what's true and what's false. And that is one of my wishes as we look at the holiday season is that we regain a sense of right and wrong and real and fake and uh, share information to help one another. I think the holidays are a wonderful invitation. It's something Dr. Benjamin talked about. I really see people smile when they do those kinds of things. And it certainly does make me feel better to reach out to people and to be extra kind and understanding towards people. It adds to my life to do that. And I don't think I'm, I'm unique at all in that way. Bill Maher just did a little bit about how the goodwill toward man lasts until January 2nd. But yeah, for people who tune in here, at least every other Thursday, you'll get reminded of a little bit of that uh, kind of holiday magic to, to last throughout the entire year because a new episode of Green Docs comes out every other Thursday. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. You can check us out on Apple Podcast, wherever you're listening content, or please stop by our website, greendocspodcast.com, where you can check out our show notes. We do put a lot of time into those. Please check them out. You'll get links from the episode, our gift guide, and send us comments and submit questions. We really love being able to give some commentary back on the episodes. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picara and Nate DiNicola and produced by Podcast 411. With special thanks to our guest, Dr. Angie Neeson. Check out our website, like and subscribe, tell your friends, and have a wonderful holiday season. Mm-hmm.